0: Thank you, brethren, and that's some wonderful singing, and wow, that's a song. Uh, we need to be careful when we sing those words, don't we, that we really mean them, but the Lord's worthy of that, and uh, I appreciate you allowing me to be with you and to do these studies in Second Corinthians. As we said before, these studies are an attempt to, to supplement, to complement the studies you were in already. They weren't intending to correct anybody or anything like that. But uh, I just had such a joy in doing some preparation in 2 Corinthians in this unit, in this section 2.14 to 7.4 and talk to the elders and it seemed like a timely thing to do. So that's why we've been studying here. Now there's several lines of thought. We're going to move now to chapter 6 verse 1 through 7 verse 4. This, this last section as I see it in this division as we move through it. Remember the, what set this whole triumph you could call it a triumph hymn, really. From 2.14 to 7.4, I think it's a hymn of triumph for, for those of us, but it's also characteristics, we've said, of New Covenant ministry, characteristics of the Christian life, what we're to be like, what we're to be about. And it, and it's, but it's set in the context, you remember the context was, that Paul was rejoicing over what? He was rejoicing over the fact that the man who had, who had to be disciplined in 1 Corinthians 5... Remember that difficult passage about being excommunicated and so forth, and that the assembly needed to turn him over to satan and and there were some in the assembly from what Paul says in this letter in the previous letter, some said oh that's that's a little too heavy, that's a little too strong, brother. We can't do that but but the majority did do it as he tells us in chapter two and and the blessed fruit of it was he was he repents, he comes back, which is always the goal. Of biblical discipline, right? The goal is restoration. I told some brethren in, in another city, another place where they had, had to do some discipline. I said, well, have you restored? Have you, have you brought it through to restoration? He said, no, no, he, he's away from us, right? Well, then you haven't finished your job. You only did half of it. That the other half is you still got to do. You got to love them back to the assembly and love them back to restoration. And of course, as we saw this morning, that's reconciliation. That takes time, sometimes years, maybe a decade. But we never give up on praying for them, and we never give up on pursuing them. And so Paul is rejoicing. And that's what sets up this triumph. He's saying, wow, the brothers come back. And he said, now love him. Make sure you love him. Don't, don't push him away. Don't castigate him. Don't be unkind to him. Love him. Affirm your love to him. We saw that in our first message in chapter 2. So now he's moving into this section. We're calling, we're titling this section, the privilege, the privilege of being representatives of the Lord. He had just finished that idea. You remember this morning in 520 and 21, ambassadors for the king. His representatives in his absence. That's his physical absence. He's not absent spiritually, of course. He's omniscient, right? But in his physical absence, the Lord is physically at the Father's right hand. But his spirit is here amongst us and working in us. And he is the seal, as he told us twice in this section, the seal, the guarantee, the down payment of the future glorified bodies that we are going to get can't wait those are the bodies that we're going to serve the Lord in for all eternity and so he says in verse 1 of chapter 6 we then as workers together with him is in italics because the workers together is it's understood to be with with the one he was talking about in verse 21 of chapter 5 with God Workers together with God. You remember over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 he used that same phrase Soon ergos. It's a great word of working together with God. You remember he talked about Apollos I planted verse 6 of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. Apollos watered but God gave the increase so then neither he who plants anything nor he who waters but God who gives increase. And he says in verse 9 for we are God's fellow workers. So that same idea is in his mind. Then the idea of the the temple of God in 1 Corinthians 3, that's going to come up here later in this section too. So that's what's in Paul's mind again, being a testimony. He says, we then as workers together with the Lord also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. They've received the grace of God that's another way of saying we're born again, right? We receive his gift of life through faith in the Lord Jesus, and it's all of his grace. But how can a genuine believer receive the grace of God in vain? Well, a genuine believer can receive the grace of God in vain by not availing himself or herself. Of the grace of God in an ongoing testimony for the Lord, right? To receive the grace of God in vain is to to be saved, but then not to do anything about it for the Lord. That's vanity. That's uselessness. That's a waste. Because the whole purpose of God saving us is to be a testimony for Him here there are a lot of other aspects of that purpose, too, to love him, to love one another, to be with him and all those things in the ongoing days. But being a testimony for him here, workers together. Isn't that amazing? The creator is saying, I want you to be a worker together with me, co-worker with, with the almighty. It almost sounds too awesome to be true, doesn't it? And maybe you're sitting there thinking that there's, that can't be what it's saying, but that's what it's saying. <laughs> Believe it brethren so I would say in these first 13 verses of chapter 6 6 1 to 13 Paul's making an open appeal and he's appealing to them to open their hearts and understand that his apostleship is genuine and if his apostleship is genuine his message is genuine or authentic what he's telling them is true You remember that one of the lines of thought working through 2 Corinthians as well as what we've said earlier, the triumph of this brother being restored. Another line of thought is that Paul's Authority, as an apostle, is under severe attack by these so-called super apostles. That's what he'll talk about in chapters 10 through 13 in detail. And these are ones that have come in. Apparently, he mentions they were Hebrews and Israelites, so apparently they were Judaizers. And they were emphasizing the Old Testament, the Torah. And they were saying they had more authority than the apostle Paul. And they were questioning his message. And so Paul sees the urgency of it, so much so that it's bothering him. He leaves Troas and moves to Macedonia. He's headed to Corinth. But he's going to send this letter first with the hope that they'll respond to it. In chapter 13, he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. This time I'm really coming. And when I come, if there are those that are opposing me, I will have to confront them face to face. And, well, you know what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. When they confronted the Apostle Peter face to face. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what's about to happen. And he doesn't want it to happen. He doesn't want these people to fall dead at his feet. And so he's urging them to come back. To not make the grace of God in vain in their lives. For he says, verse 2, In an acceptable or favorable time I have heard you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. That's interesting because it's really God the Father is speaking to God the Son, the Messiah, in Isaiah 49, that servant song we read from this morning, isn't it? Why is he quoting that? Well, to me, it's fascinating that he just happened to pick that particular passage to quote, because in that passage, it speaks about Israel's failure in trying to redeem the world, doesn't it? They were the servant of the Lord, too, and they failed. So the Lord has to send the true servant, the Messiah, his son. And he's the one who will not only redeem Israel, but he's going to redeem, redeem all of people from all of the Gentile nations. It's Too small a thing to just do it for the nation of Israel. He says, I'm going to send you to redeem. That's what this section is from. We like to quote it as a great evangelism verse and a challenge to salvation. But he's using it as a challenge to believers to get with it in their service of the Lord, isn't he? Receiving the grace of God in vain, see. Today's the day, he says. He says, today's the day in an acceptable time of favor. It's also used in the sixth servant song. You remember in Isaiah chapter 61, the one he quotes in his reading in the synagogue of Nazareth, remember when he begins his public ministry and he reads from Isaiah 61 and he stops right in the middle of a verse. The acceptable time of the Lord, the same word here, the same idea, the time of God's favor of his grace before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. The second coming, see both those in one verse in Isaiah 61 too. So, in the day of salvation, I have helped. Behold, now's the accepted time. Now's the time to respond. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't put it off, he says. We were challenged in the hymns tonight by the Holy Spirit, and he's going to continue to challenge us through this section. I'm, I'm warning you, it's a challenge to myself as well. Don't waste your life through things in this world. That don't amount to anything. Behold, now's the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I know some of us, we get preoccupied or we get obsessed with certain things, and some of us don't mind even putting our lives in danger over those things. I know some of us enjoy hunting, and there's a certain danger in hunting. There's a certain excitement of it, but we can become so obsessed with that that, that it becomes more important than the Lord, right? Or baseball or football. For me, it was car racing. Some of you know my story, right? I, when I was 16, I, was, I didn't care. I was willing to lay my life on the line for it. They said, well, you could die racing. I said, I don't care. I'm going to drop out of high school, forget college. I want to race. And, yeah, thank you. Yeah, that sound and the smell of the burned rubber and the smell of burning fuel and alcohol, I mean, I, I still, I smell it. it. It takes me back to happy days, to times when you know, we had a community, we had a fellowship together, and it was everything to me. It was more important than breathing. And eventually the Lord had to put a crossroad in my life, and he said, either racing or teaching the Bible, but not both. You choose. You choose. I said, oh, now, Lord, now, come on, that's... see, I'm not forcing you. You choose, but not both. See, he knew that my preoccupation in that particular arena would take away from my focus on the Lord, and it would have. I would have given the Lord 10% and racing, 90%, but I would have said, I'm giving the Lord my all, and probably would have saying, take my life and let it be consecrated to thee. But I would have been thinking... Or practicing differently, right? So the, the Lord brings things into our life to bring us to that position. And some of us are willing to risk our lives for things that don't matter. That trophy is going to collect dust. The trophies of this world, none of them, they're all in the trash can. I threw them in the dumpster years ago. None of them amount to anything. What counts is the crown of life that the Lord promises to those who serve Him so Paul says, we give no offense in anything, verse 3, that our ministry may not be blamed. Now it's interesting if you track that word, the idea of ministry, it's all the way through this section. Way back in chapter 3, verse 3, clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us. Right? The idea of ministry, the idea of serving the Lord. Again, in verse 6 of chapter 3, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. In chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we've received mercy and so forth. Chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure, the ministry in earth and vessels, the Lord himself within us. Chapter 5, verse 18, we saw this morning. The ministry of reconciliation. Chapter 5 verse 20. Then as ambassadors for Christ. Pleading through us. We implore on Christ's behalf. See the ministry. Chapter 6 verse 1. Workers together. Here in verse 3. And then in verse 4. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. You see he keeps working back to that idea. Servants of the Lord. It's the epitome, beloved. There's nothing more wonderful. There's nothing more exciting. Now, I'm not saying that all of us that are to, you know, quit everything we're doing and and just serve the Lord. That's according to our own calling. Each one of some of us are called to do it. And most of us are called to do it in various avenues of of occupation and in various avenues of. Of service in in the communities in where we live, and our God is creative. You look at His creation, and He's the same way in how He uses the body of Christ. So our callings are all unique and different. Your calling is not like mine, and mine's not like yours. I can't do yours. You can't do mine. We're not gifted the same. The Lord is variegated. <laughs> to use one of Ron' words, uh, landscaping words variegated multifaceted right and so we treasure that so we're not, I'm not competing with you you're not competing with me you're not trying to say well that happened for you brother but it's not going to happen for me that way right it's not going to happen for you that way but he will challenge you in some kind of way down the road if he hasn't already right the Lord puts those forks in the road purposely and the Paul, the apostle had one too on the Damascus road didn't he and he made the choice. Lord, what will you have me to do? What will you have me to do? And so he describes his ministry. And to me, this is amazing because the super apostles, the false apostles, they were all occupied with outward appearance. Paul's been bringing that up all the way through this section, and he'll continue to in chapters 10 through 13. They're all focused on outward appearance, like so many in the big churches of our day where there's all showmanship outward appearance and Paul's saying no Christianity is a matter of the heart first it eventually works itself out in our lives and conduct but it starts in the in the heart a new creation a new heart we need right and he says don't look at, at appearances don't judge me by outward appearances he says the The false apostles are saying, I'm not genuine because of the hardships I'm suffering. But really, they've got it all wrong. I'm suffering these hardships because I love the Lord and it's his will for me. And as we've said, three times in this letter, chapter 4, he gave a short list. Chapter 6, right here, he gives a longer list. And then he'll give a longer list in chapter 11, describing what? How great he is, how much intellectual achievements he has, how many awards and plaques he has on the wall. How many degrees he has? None of that. Paul wasn't into He was instructed at the feet of Gamaliel. He could have gone to a lot of plaques on the wall, but that's not what he does. Look, look what he does here. He says, In much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses. That's not <laughs> what the world considers a profitable ministry, is it? You see, you can't look at the things which are outward and seen. You can look at the things which are not seen, the things of the heart. Now, many believe, and I think you can make a good case for the fact that in much patience is kind of a general heading, and then there are three groups of three that follow that. The tribulations, needs, and distresses form a certain category of of suffering, and then the stripes, imprisonments, and tumults, You know, the tumults would be the riots, like the riot he experienced in Ephesus in Acts 19, which he refers to in this letter in chapter 1. He says, I had the sentence of death on me. They were going to pull me in that uh, arena, that theater, and pull me limb from limb. And he said, you know what? I didn't care. I was still going to go in. But the Christians wouldn't let him. They wouldn't let him go. Paul, you're not going in. I'll go and address him, and you're not going in. I love that, the, the body of Christ and how it works together to protect one another, right? He says, in labors, sleeplessness, and fastings. Now these labors and sleeplessness, sleeplessness here, he's not talking about insomnia because, you know, we had bad pizza or something. Or because we're all worried about the exam we're going to take tomorrow or some sort of confrontation with someone. He's talking about sleeplessness because of his concern for all the churches, as he'll tell us in chapter 11. He was burdened for people that were hurting. He carried their griefs in his own prayer life. And if you have been involved in personal ministry with people and you begin to con- be concerned and care for them, you've experienced this too. I've experienced this, but not like the Apostle Paul. But as your sphere of influences, sphere of influence increases, and then you have more contacts and more people in different parts of the arena and the area, you, you know about their concerns. Some of them, they, they text it to you. Some email them. Some call you with them. And, and if you are got a heart at all, you, when you hang up or when you turn, it, turn off the machine, you're going to stop and pray for them. You're going you're to be burdened for them and may even lose a little sleep over it. It won't kill you. Our bodies are a lot more flexible than we give them credit for sometimes. And fastings, oh, some of the commentaries, what they'll do to talk about, to get around fastings. Fasting is part of the Christian life, beloved. It's all through the Bible, Old Testament, New. This isn't anything new. We don't brag about it like, like the Lord told the Pharisees in Matthew 6. We don't make a big show of it and walk around and say, well, why what are you so gloomy today, brother? Well, I'm, I'm fasting, can't you tell? We don't do it like that. Then you've received your reward, the Lord says. You just got it. Enjoy it. That's it. No, we we don't let people know. But there's nothing like it to sharpen your prayer life. (laughs) When you deny your bodily appetites, it helps us to focus oftentimes more spiritually. Self-denial, right? Paul told Timothy, endure hardship as a good soldier. That's part of the Christian life for someone who wants to follow the Lord. Stripes, imprisonments, we read about those in the book of Acts. And then in verse six, he moves to eight characteristics here of the enablement and what the conduct or character of the Christian life, what, how that's manifested in this ministry, being ministers of God. So the sufferings there in the first ones that he mentions there by purity. That is probably primarily in motives, given what he's been talking about. But it's the entire Christian life. Chastity and all of that would be included. But pure motives would would be the overruling factor in all of it. We don't manipulate people. We don't use people for our own advantage. Our motives are sincere and pure. We really care about them. And that's where the prayer and... Fastings comes in oftentimes. By knowledge, by long-suffering, macrothumia, long-tempered, enduring, putting up with offenses from people and not being quick to rush to judgment, right? Long-suffering. Char- all of these are characteristics of our Lord, too. By kindness. These are part of the fruit of the Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. He's already been telling us that, part of the being under the new covenant, the giving of the Holy Spirit. By sincere agape, sincere love, unfeigned love of the brethren, it's referred to by the word of truth, the word of God, and by the power of God. And then, in my version here, it continues with the word, the uh, preposition by, but really, you probably could translate it through, it's it's a different Preposition in the Greek is dia instead of in. Like the ones that have been previously. So through the armor of righteousness. On the right hand and the left. Right? There's the sword of the spirit. And the shield of faith. would might be two of, that he's thinking of here. One's an offensive. One's a defensive weapon. But the idea of spiritual warfare. By honor and dishonor. By evil report and good report. Those three he has listed together in a group, and then he moves into the last seven with the word as and gives several paradoxical statements, right? And in these paradoxical statements, we see that in the ministry of God, as ministers of God, we are oftentimes misrepresented and misunderstood. Amen? Part of the ministry. Get used to it. The Lord carries us through, but we often experience that, where we're falsely accused or misrepresented in what we said or misunderstood in what we said. And Paul certainly experienced that. He says, as deceivers. That's what the false people were saying of him. He's a deceiver. He says, and yet true. See, that's a paradox, isn't it? He was really true, but he's being falsely misrepresented, willfully, by people that were asserting themselves for their own purposes. He says, as unknown and yet well-known. They would say, well, he's, he's nothing. He, you know, apostles talk about his stature. They even mock how he, his appearance and stature in chapter 10. He's just a little guy and he, his speech is contemptible. Why listen to him? We're the, we're the great orators. Listen to us, the super apostles said. He said, but yet well-known. Well-known to who? well-known to Christ, well-known to God, well-known to Satan. You know what I'm referring to there? Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Remember what the demon said there to the sons of Sceva? There in Acts 19, does the devil know who you are? Can he call you by name or are you just anonymous to him because you're no threat to him? Devil says through this person, this demon possessed man, he says, Jesus, I know. I know who he is, and Paul I know, but who are you? In other words, they were unbelievers. You, you're no threat to the, the demon world. They, Paul was known in the places where it counted to be known, didn't it? Unknown but well known. As dying, and behold, we live. They were being persecuted. He'll talk about bandits in chapter 11. He'll talk about his own countrymen chasing him. He'll talk about Gentile people chasing him. He'll talk about government people trying to put him in prison. All kinds of things. He says, and yet we live as chastened and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You see how they're opposites? As poor, yet making many rich. That's kind of an introduction to Chapters 8 and 9, isn't it? That great verse about our Lord. Though He was poor, He made many rich, right? He came in the area of poverty as having nothing and yet possessing everything. You see, it's a matter of perspective, isn't it? It's, it's the prism we see the world through. We see it through God's eyes we see it through the world's eyes. That's what Paul's trying to get these Corinthians to see. But beloved, when we read these verses, I believe this is Jesus Christ speaking to you and me. (laughs) I believe through the Apostle Paul, he's addressing my heart and your heart right now. It's the Lord Jesus at the Father's right hand that's saying, are these things true of you? Where do you stand in this list as ministers of God if you're born again here tonight? And so then he appeals in 11 to 13. O Corinthians, we could put your name there. We could put mine. O Thomas, Christ could say, I have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. The Lord Jesus could say, Thomas, you've got full access to the throne of God because of me. I've covered all your sins on the cross. I've done all that for you Is your heart open to me. My heart's wide open to you. Is your heart open to me? See, You see how Paul is using the situation to bring the Corinthians to examine their own hearts before God and ours, too. He says, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Paul says, we're not restricting you. That's apparently one of the accusations the false apostles were saying, oh, they put all these restrictions on you. You're under grace. Don't, you can do whatever you want. And, and Paul put this restriction of dealing with this brother in discipline and so forth, and some of them didn't like it, right? It's interesting. He may have been related to or even one of the super apostles, this one in 1 Corinthians 5. It's an interesting thought to think about, but we don't know that for sure. But you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. There were people there in Corinth that were questioning, that were listening to the false apostles, questioning Paul's authority. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. He's speaking as a father to his children. Now some of you have probably been disciplined by parents. I certainly were disciplined by my parents and I always needed it and I'm thankful I got it. Even the stripes that I got sometimes, it's kind of a joke in the family. Now, it wasn't then. <laughs> it was painful then but I needed it. I didn't i didn't see that right then. I had, it took years of the Lord working in my heart but to come to the place of saying yes, I needed it and I'm thankful for it. Dad, thanks for doing it and Dad starts crying because I didn't like doing it when I had to do it and That's what Paul's saying. You see the affection here? You see the intimacy of this, his heart, his pastoral concern for these people? And it's a picture of Christ's love for you and me. He's saying, I've opened everything to you. Are you open to me or are you holding stuff back? Well, if if we're really honest, we're usually holding stuff back, aren't we? There are compartments of our lives we haven't opened to him yet. Now, he's long-suffering to a point, so he gives us time to deal with those things. Paul was a father to these people because he planted the church, and they were his children in that sense. That's what he's saying. And then in the middle section, in 6.14 through 7.1, we see then a call to separation, which ties right in with what he was just saying, Right? And this is the privilege that he's speaking about. He starts with a command and then he follows it with five questions, which are rhetorical questions because we know what the answer is to them, right? But he says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, why would he say that to these Corinthians? Because apparently there were some that were. And the man in 1 Corinthians 5 appears that like he was, right? And that was an unequal yoke, his particular relationship that had to be dealt with. But it's not only in the area we always use this passage or often use it in the idea of marriage, right? But this is in any kind of, you know, formal business relationships, partnerships, ministry. You get, you know, serving the Lord, going door to door, all kinds of ministry. You don't get yoked up with someone who's not an evangelical, someone who, if they believe in a work salvation, you don't yoke with someone like that. They're going to pull in the wrong direction. And then what's going to happen? It's going to to break that yoke, right? So he gives five questions for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness. Now each one of these you could go into detail probably with areas in the Corinthian church that they were struggling with. The word fellowship here is really more the idea of partnership. It's not the word koinonia that's used in... The next statement, uh, this is the idea of partnership. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion or fellowship has light with darkness? There's no common ground between light and darkness, is there, between righteousness and lawlessness? What accord has Christ with Baal? Baal is a name for Satan. Is there any accord or is there any agreement between Satan's purposes and Christ's purposes? You almost wonder, why would he even have to bring that one up? That tells you the degree of the spiritual warfare that was going on in Corinth. But beloved, that's happening right here in this country too. In our churches, in our assemblies too. Spiritual warfare. We shouldn't be surprised by that, right? We're warned about that in the Bible. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Where Our whole outlook, everything is different. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And that leads him to these quotations, three of them, from the Old Testament that are so rich and powerful. And, and privilege is written all over all three of them. For you are the temple of the living God. Now that's privilege, isn't it? He says, you already are that. Now, he's not saying anything new. This is what he said in one of the 316s of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 316. I wish we'd memorize that like we do John 316, but it's a great verse. That's who we are. You are the temple, not of the idol as the dead God, but of the living God. So act like it. That's the idea. That's where he's going with this, right? And realize what a privilege, as God has said, the first quotation, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the whole idea of partnership, fellowship, working together, right? The picture of the the Lord present in in the tabernacle and then in the temple, the Shekinah glory. This particular passage from Jeremiah 32, the whole section dealing with the new covenant, Jeremiah 31 and 32, Paul, it's no accident that he's going there, I think, given what he's the theme of this whole section. You know what a privilege it is to have God dwelling in us, walking amongst us, being our God, and we being called his personal possession, his people? You see. We all need to go back and remind ourselves of these things. I'm speaking to myself too on a regular basis, don't we? Because we forget who we are. He made us that. We didn't make ourselves that. But He brought us to this high, holy, exalted position by grace. We don't deserve it. But because we're under grace that doesn't mean we don't minimize it either. We want to Relish it. Immerse ourselves in it. The truth of who we are. Verse 17, Therefore, since you are His people, come out from among them, and be ye separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Quotation from Ezekiel 20, which is a powerful passage. Be, If you have an opportunity to read it later on, it's a whole confrontation between the Lord and the nation of Israel after they were in the Babylonian captivity already, right? When Ezekiel 20 is written and the Lord's confronting them. Look, I brought you out of Egypt. I set you in the land of Canaan. And what did you do? You turned to idolatry. Worse than the Canaanites that were there before you. But he says, I'm so faithful to you that I'm still in a future day. I'm going to redeem you and I'm going to do it not because you're so good, but because of my great mercy's sake and for my name's sake I'm going to do it, he says. And it's, it's in that section. He says, come out from among them. There may be some of us here tonight that need to come out from something that maybe the Holy Spirit's putting on your heart, something that, that you've become too linked up with, that is defiling to you spiritually, that's taking you away from your thoughts of the Lord and your purposes and your drive to serve the Lord. Separate from it. He'll say it more clearly in verse 1 of chapter 7. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Now we do that by the power and enablement of the Holy Spirit, according to Romans eight thirteen. But we have a responsibility to set aside, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness, not just of the body, but of the spirit. What we see through our eye gate, what we listen to, music, television, videos, movies, All those things affect our spirit more than you know. Billboards do. You see those images and they'll stay with you for weeks. You don't even realize it. And you're thinking about it during the night while you're sleeping. Come ye apart and be ye separate. Judge those things. Separate from me. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. See, Perfecting. That is the idea of coming to maturity. Increasing in. Growing in holiness. That is separation unto God. That's what holiness means, right? Being more and more separated unto God. Now that doesn't mean a critical judgmental spirit of your brother and sister. It isn't cleanse your brother from his filthiness. It's cleanse yourself. (laughs) And if you look in the mirror and you're honest with yourself, you'll have your hands full with just yourself. Even you who are married, you want to think of your spouse. Yeah, she could really use this one or he could use this one. No, it's yourself. You'll have your hands full with yourself, beloved. If you start using it on other people, then you're going to enter in the wrong kind of attitude and spirit, this kind of critical, judgmental, legalistic thing that the false apostles were doing. We're under grace, and so we look to the Lord. So he says in verse 18 of chapter 6, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Almighty. He says, you're part of my family now. You're a new creation. I want you to demonstrate family likeness. Right? My mama used to tell me when I was a teenager and I'd be going out with a guy. She'd say, don't forget the family name. (laughs) It still gets me to hear it. She's with the Lord now, but it still hits me. Don't forget who you are. Our family name's at stake. You're taking that out. Our reputation's at stake. You're taking that out there wherever you go. Be careful. And it kept me out of a lot of trouble just to remind myself of that after she reminded me first. She'll get credit for that at the judgment seat of Christ. Sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. Well, he's our father, and so he wants us to demonstrate the family likeness. And do you realize by doing that, he's putting his reputation in our hands to a certain extent? We carry his reputation with us. People look at us and judge God by our behavior because we're his children. It's sobering to think about, isn't it? But that's what Paul's wanting these Corinthians to do. And then in the last section in verses 2 through 4 where he closes out, I believe, This section. He comes back to what he was saying in 11 to 13 of chapter 6 this open heart. Open your hearts. Only here he emphasizes you are in our hearts. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've cheated no one. See, our ministry has been pure, sincere. He's been emphasizing that all the way through. The false apostles were doing all three of these things, apparently. And Paul's saying, no, we haven't cheated anybody. And, you know, in Corinth, he'll go on to say in, in chapter 11, he says, you know what? He says, I supported myself among you. I wouldn't take a dime from you, and I still won't take anything from you. I had to rob other churches to serve you, He says. The, the churches in Macedonia supported me. I wouldn't take anything from you, Corinthians, because I knew you were worldly and materialistic, and you coveted your money, and, and so I'm not going to take I'm not going to give you an opportunity to judge me in that way. Isn't that amazing, the heart of the apostle? He says, I robbed other churches so I could serve you. That's a sad statement on him. Of course, he's going to bring that out with them in chapters eight and nine as well, this idea of grace giving, which they were lacking in. Because their, their hearts were restricted, see, in their love for the Lord. That's what Paul's trying to bring out. He says, I don't say this to condemn, verse 3, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Now that's the union of the body of Christ, isn't it? He says, you are in our hearts, and, and I, if I have to die with you, I'll die with you, because I know we're going to live together. With the Lord. So whether we live together, whether we die together, we're together. We're in this together. You see his bond, his concern for them, and his wanting to see that in their hearts towards him. Great is my boldness of speech. Boy, that's for sure toward you. Has he been bold toward your heart tonight and mine? I think so, right? Don't get mad at the preacher. This is the Lord speaking to us, right? I'm just the... Spokesperson, great is my boldness of speech toward you; great is my boasting on your behalf. And there comes the encouragement. See, in chapter eight and nine, he's going to say, "You know what? A year ago, you promised this gift to the saints in Jerusalem, and 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 you you need to give it to them. That's where the church started. That's where our Lord began the church." He says. But now the churches in Macedonia, Philippi and Thessalonica, you know, they've already given, and you haven't given anything yet. And I'm getting ready to come to you, and I hope you're going to have something. Otherwise, you're going to embarrass me because I've already been bragging about you to the Philippians and the Thessalonians about how giving you are. But you haven't given anything yet. All you've done is mouth it and talked about it. (laughs) That's a summary of what he's going to do in chapters 8 and 9. You see, Paul is very practical, isn't he? been talking about the grace of God in salvation and what he's given to us. But in chapter 8 and 9, he's going to come right back to the real issue, their covetousness. He said, what have you given to the Lord in this grace ministry, right? So he says, great is my boldness of speech. Great is my boasting. I'm filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulations. The tribulation's still there, see. The testings, the beatings, the ones being pursued by bandits and all of that, that's still happening. So how can he be exceedingly joyful? (laughs) Because of the perspective he has, right? This goes right back to, I believe, to 2.14, where he began. God always leads us in triumph in Christ. If we're in Christ and we stay close to Christ, even if we're suffering tribulations and all kinds of perplexities and distresses, we can be exceedingly joyful. Beloved, this is not natural he's talking about. This is supernatural living. Are you interested? I am. This is what it is to have the Holy Spirit working in us. To be joyful. That doesn't mean we walk around with it Smile like a Cheshire cat all the time, where we're always laughing and telling jokes. That's not always helpful. But joy is something on the inside. It's a whole attitude of heart. This will keep you from getting cancer. I'm not a doctor, but this will keep you from getting cancer. Because that joy, it's the anxiety and the stress that we carry around that causes the cancer cells. I mean, the doctors have admitted that in the secular world exceedingly joy I'm not saying you can't get cancer don't take me wrong but I think this is healthy Christian living what he's talking about are you with me on that are you up to the challenge do you see why 2nd Corinthians is not real popular I've I've never heard a series of messages on chapter 2 I'm glad you're going through it on Wednesday night, but I've never heard a series of messages on chapter 2 through 7 of 2 Corinthians. I've been a Christian for 31 years. It's not a popular section. I hope it becomes more popular. This is discipleship. This is true, authentic Christianity. Ray Stedman, down in Peninsula Bible Church, remember in Palo Alto, California, you popular in the 70s. Some of you weren't even alive in the 70s, but I was. And in the 70s, he did a little paperback booklet on this section called Authentic Christianity. It takes a different twist on some of the things, but but it's an interesting way to think about, are we authentic, are we genuine in our discipleship and our walk with the Lord? May the Lord help us. Thanks for your attention and thank you for your love for the Lord. Let's press on for him. That thanksgiving may abound to the glory of God. Amen. So, Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your great goodness to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Apart from me, you can do nothing, he said to the disciples in the upper room, and it's still true. But with me, you can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me, the apostle could say, even in Trials and tribulations, he was imprisoned when he said that, when he wrote that. Lord, we thank you for the enlightenment, the illumination, the life, the spirit of God, the word of truth. The scriptures that you've given to us, the power of God working in us. Lord, help us to be people that live on resurrection ground, on the life side of living with the Lord Jesus. First, we have to die. We have to come to the cross. But if we come to the cross, receive the Lord Jesus as our savior, he gives us life and we grow in that life from day to day being transformed into his image. Lord, help us to submit, to yield, to enjoy the Christian life. Help this testimony be a light in this region of the United States. We thank you for everyone that's here Pray you'll give us journeying mercies as we travel home tonight. And thank you, O oh Lord, for all your goodness. We pray in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.